Uh, friends, we're starting a new series today on the Gospel of John, and uh, we're going to be uh, reading through actually the entire Gospel of John together, uh, and then on Sundays, uh, we're looking at these seven miracles of John, and, and John specifically doesn't just talk them as miracles, but describes them as signs, as signs. Uh, and this is a central theme in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, he talks about how Jesus is providing people with a sign. Uh, over and over again, he talks about this. It's mentioned 18 different times in the Gospel of John. And for example, the last two verses of John summarize the entire book of the Gospel of John. It tells a story about Jesus' life, one of the four versions of Jesus' uh, story. And it's summarized uh, in these last two verses. Uh, he explains the purpose like this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But, there, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 20, verses 30 to 31. The point of the Gospel of John is for us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The point of the book is to convince us that Jesus is the, the leader of Israel, promised by God in the Old Testament, sent by God to deliver God's people, to deliver us even, the Messiah, or what can be translated as the anointed one, the special one. Which means all of these signs or miracles in the Gospel of John are intentionally included to convince us that Jesus is this chosen special leader. Because of that, these miracles aren't random or by accident. Many of them, uh, in fact, tie back to Old Testament promises. They are signs. They point to something. We'll look at one later today. Now, the word for sign means, uh, it means mark or a tool used to identify something. Think of it as a label. All wear labels sometimes, and sometimes they aren't good labels. Uh, think of it as someone's signature. Or in a larger sense, uh, think of it as uh, someone when they leave their mark, right? There's just sometimes people leave a mark. You can tell that they've been there. One of my favorite things, uh, I just love interior design, architecture, these types of things. And I visited a place recently. I was telling someone about it. And I said, yeah, they took this space and, and they chip and joanned it. Do you, do you know what I mean when I say chip and joanned it? Uh, have you seen the, 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 the hit show Fixer Upper? That's what I'm referring to. And, and as soon as I say they chip and joanned it, you can probably can imagine the white walls and the modern furniture and the shiplap. You know, like, that's kind of what this face felt. It, that's their signature. They leave their mark. And even though they probably had nothing, they had nothing to do with the space I was in, I was like, oh, that feels like something Chip and Joanne would do from Fixer Upper. So John, he sets up these miracles, and each one is a sign, a signature of Jesus. When we see it, we're like, oh, that, yeah, that's totally like a Jesus sort of thing. Someone jesus that. When we see it, we begin to understand Jesus' style, his personality. We learn just what kind of leader and teacher and Messiah Jesus is. And when we really understand these signs, we'll start seeing similar things in the world. And when we do, we're reminded, oh man, Jesus must be close. It feels like Jesus is close. We can see the mark that Jesus still has on the world. These are kind of like Jesus's signature works. Now, I know that there are some people listening or watching or are part of our community that have a lot of doubts and a lot of questions when it comes to miracles. And I hear you, no judgment there. When it comes to miracles uh, or, you know, whether they actually happened or whether they, tr is, or if something is impossible can happen or if there's 
supernatural things. You, you might not be there. You might struggle with that, if I'm honest. I've had my doubts, uh, too. But I have come to a place where I have room in my life where I believe that the impossible is possible uh, through God. And I think miracles can happen. But I want to say to those who are listening here, uh, and maybe you struggle with this, I'm not going to spend time in this series uh, digging into that. We could do a whole series on whether, you know, what is the nature of miracles and whether miracles happen and whether, you know, all this sort of stuff. We're not going to do that here. Because in John, the miracle isn't the point of the story. The miracle is just a sign. And it's a sign that I'm actually interested in. The miracle points to something bigger. So we're going to invite all of us to just suspend our disbelief long enough to kind of get to the heart of the passage. What is this miracle each week? What does this miracle say about who Jesus is? And why is this miracle more than just a miracle? What makes it a signature? What, what makes it a mark or a sign? So with that, let's look at the, the first passage. We're going to look at Gospel of John, starting with chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Just one chapter into, just you know, you're in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John doesn't include the Christmas story. Maybe you're familiar with Mary, you know, the, the, he skips all that. He gives, starts out with some really rich theology on the incarnation. We won't get into that today. And then he jumps right into Jesus recruiting his disciples. He's, he's kind of building his group. These are his people. And after he's got his people, his kind of 12 guys that he's going to do life with and spend time with, these are, these are the guys that he's going to really rely on. When they're on board, well, right next, the very next thing is what our story today. Chapter 2, verse 1, his disciples are fresh. They haven't learned anything yet. They're going to experience Jesus for the first time. Here's what it says. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, important fact, and Jesus and his disciples, these guys that he's going to do life with, had also been invited to this wedding. So it says this happens on the third day, which means that it ties it to the previous story. This is, a, this is three days after Jesus has recruited his 12 disciples. This is like right at the start of it. The story is their first story. The disciples haven't learned anything. This is their orientation. I've done an orientation. This is it. This is like, okay, this is what to expect from spending life with Jesus. And uh, I love the fact that it's going to take place at a wedding, at a wedding party. Now, weddings in the Middle East and even still today were huge events. Often the entire community would come out and celebrate. You can think of it as like a block party. Um, it was a big deal. and still is. There's, there's a lot of guests, uh, which means there's a lot of food and there's a lot of fun and a lot of drinks. So here at the wedding is uh, where they have... Uh, the entire, where the entire community is present and, and having a party, this is where Jesus kicks off his ministry with his disciples. And I love it that Jesus begins his ministry at a party. But this party is about to get cut short. Verse 3 says this, quote, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. There's no more wine. And Jesus' mother looks at Jesus and says, hey, son, you know, they have no more wine. Can you do anything about this? And it, which is kind of fair. You know, if you're going to give birth to the son of God and experience the Christmas narrative, you know, and angels and wise men and all this sort of stuff, you're going to give birth to the son. There should be some benefits. And I just have to wonder if this was a common theme of him growing up. You know, like was something happened at home, like, hey, the broom is broken, Jesus. 
is now the time that we get to see what you're capable of? Or like the, you know, the houses, I mean, I have to imagine that Mary, this isn't the first time Mary's like, hey, Jesus, here's a problem. And uh, can you do anything about it? And uh, we can assume that he didn't because there's not much during that period of time from, from his Christmas story to, uh, to the, where he starts his ministry that we don't have a lot of stories there. So we can assume it was pretty normal, pretty basic. So I know moms, she's got to be waiting for him to do the thing she always hoped he would do. You know, she gave birth to the Son of God. When are you going to, you know, live into that? You're already 30, Jesus. Like, if you've had a child who's made it that far to, to 30, then yeah, you're probably like, okay, and they still haven't been the person that you knew they should be. You're probably wondering this. So she looks at Jesus. She says, there's no more wine. Uh, a great way of saying, hey, can you fix this? And here's how, she res- how he responds. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Okay, okay. This phrase, hey woman, why do you involve me, sounds kind of rude. You got to understand that when Jesus said it, it wasn't rude. Um, it was just normal. It, was, uh, it wasn't demeaning in its original context. Uh, if you respond to your mother uh, that way now, I'm not sure what will happen to you. Uh, it, won't, it wouldn't go over well for me. Um, and if Finn ever did that to, to, you know, to his mom, my wife, uh, it wouldn't go over well for him, okay? But in Jesus' context, it was, it was, it was fine. Now, he's, but he's not going to be pressured into anything. He says his time hasn't come. He says, I can't, you know, I, he doesn't say I can't do anything about it. He just says my time hasn't come. In other words, he knows who he is, and he knows what he's supposed to do, and he knows what he's capable of. It's just a matter of when will he do it. Well, His mother relents, and she says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And interestingly enough, Jesus decides actually because of this that it is his time. And something about his mother's nudge made a big difference. Uh, So moms, be encouraged uh, listening. You know, they might say, leave me alone, but you actually might have had influence on them anyways. Uh, And that's certainly the case here in Jesus' story. So here's what happens next. Next verse. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, so fun fact, or fact, it might not be fun. Uh, The Old Testament specifically, in in chapter uh, 11 of Leviticus, there's these rules about pots and what they can contain and how they can be ceremonially clean. This is an old, ancient Old Testament idea. Clay pots could be used, they were fine, but if certain things touched the clay pots, the clay pots couldn't be used anymore. They were unclean, and it specifically says in Leviticus, you had to break them. You had to get rid of them. If certain things touched these clay pots that would be used for ceremonial washing, you know, you'd have to break them. Now, they made exceptions to things like wells and cisterns and stone stuff for, you know, partly probably because you can't throw it against the ground and it's going to break. And so these stone pots... These are stone pots that are in the story, which means that they would be ceremonial clean no matter what touched them. And what's more, they they really are meant to point us back to the Old Testament, back to this Old Testament law about how all these things were supposed to happen. Uh, They're meant to remind us of what God had done in the past for them and what God expected for them. They, They represent kind of this old law. So here's what happens. Next verse. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. 
So as we think about what these jars represent, they're like the Old Testament laws, they're these old customs. It's important to know that Jesus doesn't have them knocked over. He doesn't spill them out to, to empty what's inside. Jesus doesn't empty the jars. Jesus, the, the jars are already empty. And this is important because in all of Jesus's ministry, he doesn't reject or replace the Old Testament. He takes it and he creates something new with it. And that's part of the point of the story. He, he builds on it. He creates what is out of the old, something new, not by rejecting it or throwing it away. And so that's what happens here. He takes these empty jars, capable of re remaining pure no matter what touched them, and he fills them with water, and then this is what happens. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Boom. Water into wine. And not just any wine either. Next verse. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he told the bridegroom, he pulled, called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So not just any wine, the best wine of the night. Each week, we want to look at the miracle, and then we want to discuss how it's a sign, how it's a mark, a signature. So here's the miracle. Jesus turned water into wine. But he did more than that. He turned six 30-gallon jars of water into wine, and it was the best wine of the evening. To put this into perspective, a keg uh, is, is about 15 gallons. Uh, so Jesus crafted about 12 kegs of wine. Okay, so since, you know, you don't usually think of wine in kegs, uh, it would be equivalent to about 136 five-liter boxes of wine. If you've ever bought a box of wine, I don't know if people still buy boxes of wine. I hear they're not as bad as, you know, the stereotype. They're fine. So Jesus made more wine than they could drink, and he made it better than they could have expected or imagined. That's the miracle. Jesus made more wine than they could drink and made it better than they could imagine. So what's the sign? What's the significance? This miracle is a miracle of abundance. Now, there's another miracle in the Gospel of John we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. It's the story of the loaves and the fishes. God takes a little bit that was provided, and God does multiplies it. We're going to look at that. It's also a miracle of abundance, having more than enough. It's a miracle about God providing above and beyond what we can imagine. As Paul describes in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that is work amongst us. Ephesians 3.20. 3, that's who God is. That's the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. God can do more than you could ever ask or imagine. But what an interesting way to show us that. Wine at a party. Well, that's not by accident. The fact that it's the first miracle isn't by accident either. Uh, an abundance of wine wasn't random or just because Jesus wanted people to party or to get drunk. That's not the point of the story. So don't get confused. It's the answer to a promise given years ago. You remember the goal of these miracles is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who God said would come. That when life got really difficult for people, Jesus would show up and make it better. That's the promise. 
And there were a lot of things said about this Messiah, this leader, this king, and the future of God's people in the Old Testament. Years before Jesus, uh, during the time of the prophets, God was often disappointed with the people of Israel. They couldn't seem to get things right with God. And God, God wasn't happy. God gets pretty mad at them because of the things they do. This led to a number of things, including exile. Exile means they were uh, overtaken by foreign nations and, and, and basically sold as property. It was a devastating time for Israel. I mean, just heartbreaking. And the prophets would warn them that it was coming. They would warn them that this calamity, this terrible, this all coming, but no one would listen. And so sprinkled into the prophets are these promises that even though terrible things are going to happen because you just won't get it right, that God wouldn't remain angry. That God would eventually forgive them and that God would bring them back. That a Messiah would come and that all would be made right. And one of those promises at the end of the book of the prophet Amos. It's a great example um, because Amos spends nine chapters just hammering the people of Israel. It's just fire and brimstone. Have you ever heard an angry preacher? That's Amos. I mean, he's, he's pretty... It, you should read it. It's great. We're going to look at some of it. But he, nine chapters just talking about all the sins and injustice that the people were doing. Nine chapters of just laying into them, telling them how bad, it, how bad they were doing because of their sins. But then, right at the end, the last five verses, Amos pivots. It's like after you've yelled for nine minutes and then you're like, you know, you add the line like, but don't take it personally, you know, or something like that. Like, it's just like the last five verses he pivots and he says this. He says, God will forgive them. A day is coming when all will be made right. The day is coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring back my people from exile. He says, the days are coming when I will bring you back. When there'll be such a big harvest that those harvesting are going to still be picking grain even when it's time to start the next crop can you imagine having that much it's like you 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 buy so it's like nowadays we don't harvest but it'd be like going to the store and buying so much groceries that you take them home and uh and you you don't have anywhere to put them and so you're still putting them away when it's time to go back to the store and get more groceries that's what he's describing you just you don't even have the cupboards for it. That the, the grapes, they're gonna have to wait to make wine because people are still picking more grapes. They can't plant more grapes. And then he says, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. It, it kind of reminds me of this old uh, classic folk country song. I don't know if you know this one. Uh, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Anyone? Uh, it's one of my brother's favorite songs. I think it's his theme song. Uh, remember, I'm from Hicksville, so it's very appropriate. Um, that's a real place, by the way, and a great place, actually. Um, I don't think it's what God had in mind here, but at one point in the song, the guy sings, uh, and there'll be little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks. You know, that's, that's the picture, though, that the prophet paints of the future day when God will make all things right. So do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus decides to begin his ministry at a wedding where he makes way too much wine, and it's the best wine you've ever tasted? No. This isn't just a miracle. It's a sign. Jesus is the one God promised would come. And so we see that first sign of Jesus is a miracle of abundance. More than you need 
and better than you can imagine. That's the God we serve. And, and this is good news, and this is amazing, and it should get us excited, and we should feel good about it, but we need to be careful about what this means and about what this doesn't mean. So let's get real. In our American culture, we have bought the lie that more is better and that wealth is God's blessing to those who work hard and are faithful to God. And this isn't just something a few people believe. Entire multi-billion dollar ministries are built around this idea. Countless books teach this. Numerous radio and television shows proclaim it. We've all been influenced by it. Um, it's common and acceptable and not a problem and often taught in most churches and in most small groups that Christians, it's fine for you to build your own financial kingdom. You, you won't see people challenge that. In fact, most churches are going to hold a workshop on how to do it better. You know, throughout the history of the church, there are stories of people who've given up all they have to, to help the poor and to, to live as one of them. Living in community, countless stories in the Gospels and in, in the book of Acts. It's the whole story of the book of Acts. And since then, but I'm going to ask you, how many modern American versions do you know of that story? And you can, can you now count more than you have fingers? Do you know someone personally that's sold all they have and given it to the poor? Now, now I ask you, is that just something God doesn't ask of people to do anymore? It's just not something God asked us to do. Or is maybe there's something else going on here? I want to suggest that I think it's because we tend to believe that more is better. And that more is in some way a blessing from God, like wine that flows down from the hills. And so it needs to be said that this is not what Jesus is saying here. And it's not the point of the miracle either. So we got it. We got it. And here's how I know this is a good example of why biblical context matters. You see, Amos speaks of the day where there'll be abundance in the land, that we will know God has showed up and is making things right because we'll, we'll have so much to go around. But that isn't the only thing uh, Amos says. You remember, I mentioned earlier that Amos is full of judgment and criticism. It's a book that lays out the sins of Israel, nine chapters of it. Only five verses give them hope. 140 verses give them judgment. And it's interesting, just a fun fact, or at least a fact, maybe not fun, uh, that, that historically the five verses that are good news are quoted more often in the history of the Christian church than, than the other nine chapters, right? Because we tend to, you know, we like the, the parties and we like the good news. But the other 144 verses lays out their sins and what's going to happen to them. Amos makes it clear what kind of abundance the future Messiah will bring. Very clear. And if you read it, you'll realize that it's not, that not all abundance is a sign of Jesus. That not all wealth and good times and unending wine is a sign that Jesus is close by. In other words, not all parties are because of God's kingdom touching earth, because God is close. Here's what Amos has to say about the wrong kind of abundance. Here's what the people of Israel were doing, and here is what they are being condemned for. Now, I want to ask, as I read these, ask yourself, does any part of this feel familiar? More specifically, ask yourself this. Does, does our American Christian culture line up with what, Abraham, with what Amos promises? Or does it sound more like what Amos condemns? Because we don't want to get confused between what Amos condemns and what he promises. Because they're not the same thing. So here's what Amos had to say about the people of his day. Amos 2.7. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. And they deny justice to the oppressed Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. What did the Israelites do wrong? Why was the prophet 
condemning them. The wealthy and the rich were exploiting the poor in more than one way. He goes on, Amos 4, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan and Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. What did they do so wrong? The wealthy and the powerful lived lives of luxury at the expense of the poor. But not just that. Amos 5.11. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Amos 5.11. They were living with abundance, but only because they had a tax system that was an extra burden on the poor. He goes on, verse 12, chapter 5, 12. He says, For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. What were they doing wrong? The court system was stacked against the poor. If you were poor and you didn't get a, you didn't get a fighting chance then. But if you were wealthy, you could just buy your way out. Sound familiar? Amos 8, 6 goes on. It says, buying the poor with silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. In other words, they got rich off the back of slaves, unpaid labor, underpaid labor. Now, these were their sins. The rich exploited and oppressed the poor. The courts were stacked against the poor. The, the rich got, off, uh, got rich off of unpaid work of the poor and underpaid work. And, and there was an unjust tax system that oppressed the poor. And instead of sharing their stone mansions and large vineyards, they ignored the poor. And they, they walked over the poor like they were dust of the earth. You see, the promise of Amos was a promise of abundance. But you need to understand that the sins were sins of abundance too. Because not all abundance is good. And the abundance they were condemned for was one where they hoarded and gained it at the cost of others. Which can lead us to believe that maybe this isn't the kind of abundance that Jesus came to bring. Of course not. In fact, we have words for this. When people grab a hold of and gather up abundance, I don't care what it is. Abundance of anything. And you grab it and you hoard it and you hold on to it and try to get more and more of it. You know what we call that. It's called greed. And when people gather it up and they indulge in it and they eat it and they drink more wine than they need to or whatever it is, if you indulge in more and more, we have a word for that. It's called gluttony. And when abundance is then gained because of unjust systems that oppress people, we call that oppression. And when abundance is gained at the cost of people who will never share in that abundance, we call that exploitation. It's not mutual. You're exploiting someone. And these are not what Jesus had in mind. Go back to the story of turning water into wine. The fact that there was more than enough wine to go around wasn't the sign. In fact, the family that Amos spoke of who owned a stone mansion and had lush vineyards, that verse in Amos, they likely, when they had a wedding, you better believe they probably had more wine than people could drink. So excess wasn't the point. The point was that Jesus provided more than enough wine to go around for someone who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. So you can't miss the point of the miracle. Someone threw a wedding and they didn't have enough money to cover the cost of the wedding. They ran out of wine. We gloss right over that. 
And if you've ever throw, tried to throw a party on a shoestring budget, you know, or invite people over and you know it's not enough, you know exactly what that feels like. I can imagine, you know, you're having the whole block over for your wedding and you know, you know weeks in advance that you're going to run out of wine. You know, I don't think this surprised the host or the bridegroom. Do you? No, they knew they didn't have enough. Do you know what that feels like? To be embarrassed like that and to experience that shame. The miracle is that Jesus gave more than they could imagine to someone who couldn't afford it. You see, it's not about having a lot. It's certainly not about hoarding the good things in life for ourselves and for our families. And it's not about having more or more is somehow better. The sign, Jesus' signature. One of the like, ah, it's a signature move. Jesus' signature move can be seen when, when abundance is available to all people, especially those who would never have it otherwise. That's when you're like, man, Jesus must be close. That's when we look around and we're like, oh man, Jesus must have been here. I can see Jesus' fingerprints on everything. Not because you happen to be rich. In fact, if you're rich, you're, you're actually at more risk of judgment than you are of blessing. No, it's the fact that you aren't rich and Jesus showed up and he made it work anyways. That you threw a party you'd never be able to throw without Jesus intervening. That's Jesus' signature touch. That's the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. Now, some of you might think that I'm being too harsh, and that's fine. Um, but I encourage you to read the next story in the Gospel of John if you think I'm being too harsh. It follows the wedding story, and I think it follows it on purpose. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he gets to the temple, and he sees all this religious people making money off the people who traveled there to worship. They're selling things at ridiculous prices. They get rich off of it and, and engaging in money transfers and with high fees, and they're getting rich off it. And, and you will not believe what Jesus did. I'm going to let you read it for yourself. He goes all Amos 9 chapters on him. I'll just give you a hint. It involves a wimp and he throws a whip and he throws some tables over. That's the story that follows this one. If you had any doubt what this story is really about, I'm going to leave it there for now. Here's how the, the sign, this miracle of water and the wine ends. John chapter 2, verse 11. It says, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The disciples saw what Jesus did. And it's funny because if you remember the story, the people at the wedding event, they, they aren't told where the wine comes from. They assume the guy throwing the wedding, you know, had just been holding out. That's how the story goes. And I love it that Jesus lets the guy get, take, get credit for it. You know, the disciples watch Jesus not only save a party, but prevent shame from falling on the host. Jesus made a way where there was none. Jesus brought abundance where there wasn't. And when the disciples saw this, they started to believe. And I have to say this. This is still one of the ways that I see Jesus in the world. It remains a sign for me. When I see people give and give and they bring abundance to those who would never have it otherwise, something about that points my heart to Jesus. And I, my faith is strengthened. Thousands of years later, I still see Jesus show up in those moments. Let me put it another way, and I'm going to end with this. One of the best ways we can convince people that Jesus is still alive and doing things is to show them what it looks like to bring abundance to places where there aren't any. I'm going to say that again. One of the best ways that we can convince people that Jesus is still alive and still doing things in this world is to show them what it looks like to bring abundance to places where there aren't any. But that means the opposite is also true. One of the best ways to convince people that Jesus is nobody important, 
and no longer relevant to this world is to show them what it looks like to gather more and more abundance for yourself and call it God's blessing. One of the best ways to convince people that Jesus is no longer relevant is to gather up more and more and build your own kingdom and just gather it all and make sure that you're comfortable with no concern for anyone else and then tell them that that's what God has, that's God's plan for your life. And people look at you and you think, man, I don't want anything to do with that God. That doesn't seem like Jesus to me. One of the best ways we can do is move into a place where we live these principles that Jesus taught about. We lay down what we have. We share. We give up. We do what we can. And that's why I love being a part of this church, because we do, you all do this in so many ways. From Little Bottoms Free Store to the way in which you live your lives generously. And that's what it's about. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and I just give you thanks for the ways that you challenge and speak to us. We ask that your words would come and just challenge us, prick our hearts. Um, and for those who need encouragement, that you would just lift us up and, and remind us of what it is that we're about. That it's not about myself or gaining more for myself or doing whatever I can to get ahead, but that it's about making sure that we're building a community where there's equal access to abundance. You've given us so much in this world and everything here is yours already. This whole world is yours. Help us to be good stewards of it. Help us to remember what you said when it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if there's any blessing in wealth, it's in the opportunity to give it away. Help us to live generous lives. In your name we pray. Amen.